Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversation, a podcast series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state and its manifestations, which allows us to deconstruct and reimagine the complex systems that structure our society. I am recording from the University of Oklahoma, which is on the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today, Dan Berger, is recording from the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Salish, specifically belonging to the Duwamish people. Dan Berger, who I am extremely excited to have on the podcast today, is an associate professor at the University of Washington. He's an interdisciplinary historian focusing on 20th century social movements as a way to understand how freedom and how violence have shaped the United States. Dan has published and edited many important and insightful books and articles, including the award-winning Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era. He and Emily Hobson just recently published uh, their co-edited book, Remaking Radicalism, a Grassroots Documentary Reader of the United States, 1973 to 2001. Thank you so much for being in conversation today, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Good. So I want to start off with a deceptively simple question, a question I think you've been thinking about and writing about for many years. What is the carceral state? Yeah, it's a really important question and one that, you know, has been exciting to see this explosion of literature about the carceral state. And yet a lot of people don't always define what they mean by the carceral state. So I appreciate the opportunity to even think, think about it as a definition. Um, I would say the carceral state refers to uh, two things. On the one hand, I think we're, we're talking about the state's carceral powers. So the state's ability to um, police, detain, um, punish right, in, in a sort of industrial capacity. And I think on in that level, we're, we're, we could say that all states are carceral, right? that, that the state form has within it uh, carceral power. Um, but I also think that, that we could talk about the carceral state in the ways that some scholars of slavery talk about the difference between a society with slaves and a slave society. So throughout the world, throughout history, we've had lots of, of societies that have used different forms of enslavement but only certain places have been slave societies, right? Societies where slavery is so constitutive of how they function that, uh, that, those, that those societies only make sense in and through slavery. And so I think we could think of the carceral state similarly, within, certainly within the American context, as the ways that carceral power, carceral violence, right, by, by which I mean police, uh, incarceration, and surveillance, are so fundamental to to the structure of the United States that that it is a carceral state. That makes sense. Um, that's important to define. I wanna I wanna follow up with one thing on that because you mentioned the difference between enslaved and slave society, and in thinking, especially in the American context of the history of the carceral state, can we? I mean, where should we put a start date of the carceral state? Is it mass incarceration in the late twentieth century? Is it the emancipation of enslaved people? Is it 1619? How can we trace that back? And what are some of the, I guess, core logics other, that, that enforce this violent system? Yeah. So I, I like to think that mass incarceration is a phase of the carceral state. 
Um, so we that we we should understand mass incarceration as a sort of temporally um, specific phenomenon of the late 20th century and, and into the 21st century. Um, that is characterized by all of the things that, <laughs> that, that we think of when we, when we talk about mass incarceration. Um, but, but I think, you know, mass incarceration didn't, we, we didn't go from, from having no incarceration or, or even from having a carceral system that was similar to, to the rest of the Western world to all of a sudden having mass incarceration. Right? And so I think the the U.S. carceral state develops precisely out of this country's history of uh, of uh, chattel slavery and settler colonialism, um, which is why I think you see a lot more scholarship that's trying to understand both racial capitalism and settler colonialism in the making of different forms of the carceral state, particularly around policing and incarceration. Um, and so I think we could see see certain um certain developments and i think your point about you know is it 1619 right like I, I think there are ways that we should think about the carceral state preceding and in fact structuring the rise of the united states um so i talk with my students a lot here in washington state about how the first prison in the state is the washington state penitentiary at Walla Walla was built before Washington was a state, <laughs> when Washington was still a territory. Um, and, and there's a scholar, Ben Weber, who's uh, writing a book uh, about the sort of global imperial history of, uh, of U.S. carceral, of, of U.S. incarceration, uh, that starts with McNeil Island, a federal, uh, what was a federal prison uh, in Washington as well. Right? So I think we have to see prison as as a sort of foundation of the state, uh, out of which the state the state arises. Um, and in that sense, right, the, the U.S. carceral state is older than the United States itself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in thinking that some people have phrased mass incarceration or enslavement as certain like backlashes, whether it's to the civil rights. And I mean, as, as you're saying, as I think I understand it, it's not really a backlash. There's this longer norm of violence, punishment, um, captivity, um, all of those different manifestations of the, of the carceral state. Yeah. So in, in terms of thinking um, about prisons and about the carceral state, and while we're working on defining our terms, so we can, I think it's important defining terms when we're trying to manage and deconstruct these systems, how is the carceral state different from the prison industrial complex? Are they the same? Are they different? How should we put these in conversation? Yeah, um, it's a, a great question. I, I tend to think that that they are simpatico terms um, that that are maybe being used differently, um, but I think are, are being used at least the way that I understand them are being used to understand to to name the same interlocking. Uh, institutional relationships, particularly across the domain of prisons, policing, and surveillance, um, but also the sort of broader apparatus that um, that that surrounds those different institutions. So you know, we could talk about the media and so on. Um, personally, I I'm partial to the carceral state over the prison industrial complex only because I think people often misread the prison industrial complex that term. As, as making uh, an 
economistic argument, right? That that is to say, we have mass incarceration because private companies are are behind it all, or private prisons are driving it all, and so on. And I think when you look at you know someone like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I think have done more than than perhaps anyone to really popularize that term, you know, you, you see a robust analysis, an incredibly robust analysis that's not at all doing that. But then people, um, but other people take up that that phrase and, and, and really, I think, go down some analytical dead ends. Um, so I'm partial to the carceral state because it, it names the state as a, an essential component of carceral power of carceral institutions um, uh, and so at which I think keeps keeps our attention where it needs to be um, and, and because I think the prison industrial complex even though I think the ways that that Ruth Wilson Gilmore defines it and, and some others define it I think is 100% correct um, I just think it's it's too often misread uh, to, to make a faulty argument yeah I think that's a great point that it's it sort of narrows them uh, it sort of narrows the subject and I think it's Ruthie Gilmore that said prisons aren't just buildings over there. They're these set of relationships or institutions that affect everyone everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So when thinking of other sort of fundamental features or conditions of the carceral state, you've written a lot about protests and activism. Um, would you say that protest against the carceral state is a key feature? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to see, you know, the certainly the Black freedom struggle over over its long duration from the days of slavery to the present as constantly rejecting and resisting these different forms of carceral power. Um, and then more specifically looking at mass incarceration, you know, prison officials and, and other government officials were very directly trying to undermine the organizing that was happening in prison. So, you know, when we when we talk about mass incarceration, we shouldn't only look to the massness of it, of lots of people going to prison, but we also have to look at the quality of incarceration itself. And this is a time period of the the rise of super maximum forms of incarceration, the rise of long-term solitary confinement. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, of the Marion Control Unit uh, that Alan Gomez has written about and, and that uh, organizer Nancy Kershaw has written a memoir um, called Out of Control. Um, I'm thinking of Pelican Bay State Prison in California that Karamit Ryder has written about. And, and in each of these and uh, numerous other uh, examples, what prison officials did first was to crack down on organizing and to make it harder for people, for incarcerated people to um, to communicate with each other and to organize with each other, as well as increase their the, um, the surveillance and the capacities for censorship, separating incarcerated people from the outside world. And then and that a kind of war against prison insurgents, uh, as, as Rob Chase talks about in his book on Texas, and became the foundation for, for the modern prison. Yeah, there's this move towards, as you mentioned, with the super maximum, this move towards isolation, specifically as a form of political repression. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to I wanna 
ask a little bit about activism and where we've seen some successes or continued movements. And I want to start with something you uh, and your co-editor, Emily Hobson, wrote in the introduction to Remaking Radicalism. You label the introduction about a usable past. And you write, quote, to speak of usable pasts is to adopt an active and pragmatic stance towards history. The usable past is an interpretive strategy that approaches history as a renewable resource in complex service of the present. First, I just love how that's framed. I, I immediately went into my syllabus for next semester <laughs> and added that. And, and I want to I follow up. I want to ask, why do you think it's important for organizers and activists to reflect on and incorporate their intellectual and their tactical lineage? What have movements gained from this usable past? Yeah, um, great. There's a lot there. I mean, I think partly it's it's just the study of history itself, right? Of how, how do we understand? We can't understand where we are if we don't know where we came from. Um, and I think that's true, you know, in a, in a movement context. You know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to to be reductive, but I think if, if you want to talk about how do you win something that you're organizing around, I think it's helpful to know what, what's been tried before. Um, and, and I think to try and understand um, the different conditions, right? Why some things are successful in one period, but not successful in another, or, um, or, or what, what kinds of um, coalitions are possible, right? As a result of, of certain kinds of, um, you know, relationships and so on. Um, and, and I think the, the relational piece of it is, is critical as well, that organizing is not simply about, about success in, in a sort of narrow way, but about transforming how, how, how we treat each other, how we live with each other, and what kind of institutions mediate the ways that, that people sort of relate to each other. And so all of that, I think, comes from, it comes from history, right? It, it is the accumulation of, um, of different of different sort of historical processes, um, and so I think we can look back at that for some sense of inspiration. We can look back at that for some broad sense of guidance, not not as a how to manual, um, but but as a as a as an understanding of of how we got to where we are, um, as we as we chart some some sense of where we're going. Yeah, I love that it's not a how-to manual, but it just informs our present thinking. And when you were putting together these documents of radicalism and looking at how radicalism has changed um, in the 1970s, did you see, I mean, common, I mean, you look at a bunch of different movements and coalitions and issues for which people were fighting for, did you, did you find some sort of persistent themes either in the motivations for fighting or what they what these people were fighting against yeah definitely uh, you know part of the, the book is arranged um thematically rather than chronologically precisely because we recognize that that organizers and movements were asking similar questions right and, and you know the ways that they asked or, or the ways that they tried to answer them were different based on on time place and circumstance um, and we've talked some in the introduction, right? Some of that is, is about an urban versus rural difference, but some of it is also about a temporal difference, right? Just the world of, of 2002 is different than the world of 1987 because it's later, right? So, so there are some things that need to happen. Um, and yet in both, 
in both cases, right? Pe people are trying to figure out um, how, how to how to remake the world. Um, I think what you know the the one of the sections in the book um, that's particularly relevant for our conversation is under the mantle of walls and gates, um, because we see a tremendous transformation of space in this time period, right? both the, the rise or acceleration of gentrification, um, particularly it, throughout the urban landscapes, um, as well as that sort of taking place in, in this period of hyper-criminalization and uh, mass incarceration. And so struggles against police brutality, which you know, are as old as the institution of policing themselves, <laughs> policing itself, um, continue to be, you know, a dynamic entry point for um, for, for different kinds of organizing. Um, I think campaigns around political prisoners uh, as a kind of fulcrum f way to target repression uh, more generally um, also becomes this, this really central campaign. Um, and, and we can see that in, in particular movements. I mean, I think um, a lot of the Puerto Rican independence movement as an example, where you had a whole generation of, of activists really shaped by the incarceration of five Puerto Rican nationalists from the 50s who, uh, who were freed as a result of an international campaign in the 70s, um, in, in the late 70s. And then very early on in the 1980s, there's a whole new generation of Puerto Rican political prisoners, right? And so, so this kind of intergenerational, almost a kind of recursive presence of, um, of sort of state repression meeting sort of popular campaigns, um, I think it really defines that period, right? And, and that generation of Puerto Rican political prisoners, many of whom were freed in 1999, right? So it sort of bookends the period. Um, the, the, these sort of two two campaigns around groups of, uh, of Puerto Rican independence activists, um, and I think you you know you, we see different things like that are in campaigns against uh, against uh, fascist movements um, and their alliance with uh, with different elements of the Republican Party, and um, can see it in in attacks on on welfare. Um, I think a lot around the the intersections of environmental movements, anti-nuclear movements, and indigenous sovereignty um, is, is also uh, an arena where we see a kind of larger movement take shape, right? I think th those sorts of movement moments are, are, are beyond particular campaigns, beyond particular kind of issue areas, and, and one where people start to understand themselves as part of a larger, part of a larger collective. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. That's a great point. I, mean, I like that that you're bringing up there um, this connection between both economic and racial justice. That is almost impossible to disentangle the two. If you have harm to land or harm to health, it almost always falls upon those who are marginalized. Um, and the these types of oppression go hand in hand. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask the closing question that I ask all my interviewers or all the people that have been on this podcast. And it's the one that after these conversations sort of dealing with oppression, dealing with the carceral state, I mean, this, the last half of this conversation has been more uplifting when talking about activists and people reimagining their world. Um, but it's a question I like to ask. So we'll, we'll, I'm excited for your answer. What makes you hopeful today? Yeah. 
you know, this is this is a bleak time period, <laughs> and I, I want your questions about hope, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an answer, um, but but it would be um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be honest if I didn't begin with that acknowledgement, um, and I think it's particularly bleak in thinking about the in, in thinking through incarceration. Right? So obviously we've been dealing with a pandemic for almost a year, uh, and 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 we know about the pandemic that people who are elderly and people who have underlying health conditions are and people who are in uh, in in what's called congregate living or congregate atmospheres in close quarters are are particularly susceptible to um, to exposure from the from the pandemic, and of course incarceration ticks all of those boxes, right? People are crammed together and because of mass incarceration, people have long sentences. And so they're serving, you know, 700 years in prison um, in some cases, right? Um, and, and you know, because uh, incarcerated people tend to come from the most exploited and oppressed sectors of society and because prison itself is so toxic, it's lots of people with underlying health conditions. And so, so if, of all things, right, a pandemic should have been the end to mass incarceration, right? It, sh- it should it should inspire a massive, urgent um, decarceration campaign in the interest of public health. And by and large, that hasn't happened, right? There's been different, you know, there's been some small scale releases, uh, but but it hasn't generally been the people who are most vulnerable. Right? It tended to be people who are close to release, having their release dates moved up. Uh, and to me, it seems like ultimately governors, both Republican and Democrat, decided that that they weren't gonna they weren't gonna do it <laughs> because to 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 engage in decarceration um, would admit that 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 seven hundred year sentence was always unnecessary. It was always designed to be punitive more than um, rehabilitative, more than anything else. And and so to I think to really come to terms with that, right? That that politicians of both parties are just engaged in this mass human sacrifice just to just to abide by the point of the, <laughs> just just to uphold the carceral state itself um i think is is incredibly is incredibly upsetting it's, i mean that's not even the right word for it right? um it's, it's it's devastating it's wrenching um and we also have seen the the biggest period of of sustained protest in this country's history, um, and and it's not just that that there were this you know summer of uprisings and rebellions, but the clarity of those rebellions, right? That you could see something like defund the police become such a um, uh, a sort of vocal demand, um, right? And and it's one that if you are part of or connected to the organizing you know it's a familiar demand but to see it to, to see it sort of be on the proverbial front page and even you know months later to see people go out of their way trying to to tarnish the slogan and say how bad it is right all that stuff shows how powerful it is right because it, it's a it's a it's a clear demand and it's, and it's a demand um, that speaks you know directly to the power of the carceral state or to ending the power of the carceral state um, and one that that actually genuinely has people has elites scared, um, and so I think that's that's rather remarkable, right? I mean, as as a historian who's been focused on you know recent history, um, 
you know, and, and, and very keenly aware of how current movements are drawn from uh, upsurges of the recent past, there's no, there's no corollary to this, right? Even, even the heyday of, you know, like the Attica Rebellion and the other sort of prison uprisings that happened in the early 70s and the urban uprisings that happened in the 60s, um, did, did not have the same amount of, uh, of clarity of, of demand, right? The way that, that we could now talk about defund the police. Um, it's, so to me, that, that's tremendously exciting and, and to see the, the, the development of a lot of new um, leaders and organizers really come, in, come into their own in this time period, uh, I think is, is tremendously promising in what is a very dark time period. Yeah, that's that's such a good answer. And I told you it was gonna be the closing question, but I am gonna follow up with another because you I mean, you bring up these two points. You juxtapose on one hand this punitive nature of incarceration that I think Victoria Law just published or posted an article um saying I think over twenty one percent of America's prisoners are over the age of fifty, which is in prison that age means something. Um and at the same time People are scared of this very clear policy demand of defunding the police, of allocating resources elsewhere. And the response, as you point out, has been clearly that policing, that the carceral state is punitive, that it doesn't serve this higher purpose of justice, um, that it's to repress dissent and it's to maintain power. So I want I want to follow up because you published in this series uh, this summer, this Kaepernick publishing and level series on Medium on abolition. And you wrote um, w- an article, What is and What Could Be? The Politics of Abolition. I want you to follow up on, on your What Could Be Hopeful with what are the real demands? What what does abolition or what does defund look like? Not just the, because part of it is disinvesting from police or defunding, but what is the other part? What does the that world look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, we could certainly talk about, you know, again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Marion Kaba and others who, who really emphasize that abolition is, this is Ruthie's quote, that abolition is, is creation, that abolition is a presence. Um, and I think that uh, we, we see that a lot in in these fights over the over budgets, which is what David Stein and I were, were really emphasizing in that fight in that in that article. Um, so fights over, you know, are we spending money? I mean, most it's sort of clearest to see in in some of the schools, not jails, um, campaigns that uh, have been around over the last thirty years. Right? Are, do we want to spend money on? equitable uh, public schools or do we want to spend money on locking people up? Um, and I think there's been a lot of abolitionist campaigns that have have been, uh, you know, campaigns for educational justice and educational equity. Um, and so I, I think that's one thing. I think uh, we see it in in efforts. I mean, basically, I think any, any campaign that is about providing the resources for people to be happy, healthy, and safe is an abolitionist campaign, right? Because police and incarceration don't make us happier. <laughs> they don't make us healthier. Uh, and ultimately, they don't make us safer, right? I mean, I think the, the, the idea that we're sold is that they make us safer. Um, and, and people want to look to them to make us safer. But, but then we see Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and um, Tamir Rice and, and so many others. Right? We see a, a prison population that is, you know, 
a, a functionally a nursing home in terms of some of the people who are held held there, um, right? And 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 this is you know, and and we see the seventy million Americans that have some form of of criminal conviction history, and we know these are not institutions that make us uh, that make us safer. And so I think the kinds of campaigns that um, that that maximize happiness, health, and safety are abolitionist campaigns. And so in that piece, we also talked about how, how something like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, even though they don't understand themselves as, uh, as abolitionists, and certainly in terms of the congressional debates around them, um, but I think how we need to understand them as abolitionists, and we need, to, we need to make that connection, right? Because the ways that we're going to end at least mass incarceration, if not the carceral state, is by recognizing how foundational criminalization is to every facet of society. And so if we can remove the punitive debt from, from schools, right, where you know, school systems are, are charging if you don't pay, pay your lunch debt, charging families, you know, if you don't pay your lunch debt, you'll, you'll be fined or incarcerated. Um, if we remove um, debt from even the realm of possibility in the realm in, in terms of healthcare, um, then then we don't have people um, self-medicating and, and looking to other kinds of you know both dangerous things and things that bring them into conflict with the state, right? So all of these things are are abolitionist endeavors, or at least um, have the seeds of being abolitionist endeavors because they reduce the scale and scope of punishment and maximize the scale and scope of of harmony. That's that's perfect. That makes sense. I will leave it with that, with happy, healthy, and safety um, as the three goals and building that coalition. It's it's interesting that you phrase it as we as abolitionists need to see these other projects as abolitionists and bring them into this bigger tent. Um, I think that's important in coalition yeah, building. And I, and I think vice versa, right? I, like, I think, I think, Medicare for all ad- adherents need to see themselves as abolitionists, right? We need to recognize like it, it, that, that that is a, a project of mutuality, um, not only because all organizing is a project of mutuality, um, but because, uh, because the criminal punishment system is where we see these carve-outs happen all the time, right? So, you know, any sort of claim to universal social goods, except for people who have been convicted of a crime, right? Except for people who are not citizens uh, and, and the ways that we can render that a, a criminal act, et cetera. And so, so I, I, think, I think that work happen, needs to happen on both sides so that the abolitionist effort is, is a demand for a Green New Deal, um, but also that proponents of a Green New Deal are, are aware of how, of how climate change, you know, can foster this kind of right-wing border secure, quote unquote, border security, um, and and other kinds of criminalization uh, sort of schemes. Yeah, great point. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for talking today. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Carceral Studies Conversation. Stay a part of the conversation. Find us on Twitter at ou underscore csc. Until next time, take care. <laughs>